Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Welcome back. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at a passage from Octavia Butler's incredible novel, Parable of the Sower, and I cannot wait to dig into it with you. Before we get to that, though, I just want to touch quickly on a sentiment that keeps popping up lately, and unfortunately, it's something that I've heard over and over throughout my life, and it's this that reading fiction is a quote-unquote waste of time. Just came up yesterday, I was listening to an interview between two people whose teaching I really admire, and I admit to feeling pretty frustrated by the comment. Now, I understand that the point being made is often that people spend their time reading in order to learn something. Not for, and again, I'm going to just go ahead and use my air quotes here, entertainment. And so often they feel that fiction has less educational value than nonfiction. In case you haven't picked up on this yet, I vehemently disagree. First, there's just the concept of wasting time. I would argue that the only time wasted is time spent disengaged. If we are fully engaged with whatever we're doing, be it talking to our kids or making meals or watching a movie or reading a book or, you know, anything pretty much, it's not wasted time. I'm not saying that there aren't things we'd rather or rather not spend our time on or that different things have different value to us and that our time is precious. I get that. I think of when the COVID lockdown started last year and everyone was talking about the whole Tiger King thing, Jess and I decided, possibly against our better judgment, to watch it. And I will 100% admit that my dominating thought when we finished was, well, there's eight hours of my life I'll never get back. But again, I wouldn't call even that wasted time. I admit I did not love it and I would not watch it again. But it was not devoid of value. It was not a waste of my time. I learned a few things. I learned about a subculture that I didn't even know existed. I felt the gamut of emotions from vague amusement to total horror. And ultimately, it allowed me to decide for myself What I thought about something that was making a mark on our culture at the time instead of basing my opinions on what I'd heard secondhand. That's not wasted time, even if it might feel like maybe it wasn't the best or highest use of my time. Which brings me to my second point here. As it turns out, productive is not the only worthwhile way to spend our time. Producing is not the sole purpose of our lives. 
even if rest or entertainment were the only things that we were able to get from a novel or a piece of fiction, if they bring us joy or rest or make us laugh or make us think, that's sufficient to be worthwhile. It is okay to have fun. It makes us better people in the rest of our lives. No one needs us to be a martyr worn down by the grind of life. Fun is allowed. Joy and rest are allowed. Let's stop calling those things a waste of time because they're not. And here's the thing about this whole sentiment about fiction being a waste of time that really gets to me. It completely overlooks the fact that there is tremendous power in story. Story is how we feel things about what we learn about the world, what connects us as humans to the facts in a way that makes us, you know, give a damn. Think about the movie Titanic. It was a record-breaking blockbuster that some of us, golf, golf, may or may not have gone to see in the theater repeatedly. But here's the thing. While we have all kinds of facts and figures about the sinking of this ship, it's the fictional story of Jack and Rose that drives home to us what those facts and figures meant to the people who actually lived them. Their fictional story helps us more fully grasp and connect to the real-life stories of the people who were really on the actual sinking ship. In Jonathan Gottschall's TEDx talk, he talks about a research study where when subjects were put into fMRI machines, it was shown that while they engaged with the story, their brains reflected the activity of a participant, not of an observer. Let me say that again. When we're engaged with a story, our brains become that of a participant in that story, not simply that of an outside observer. How's that for empathy? I mean, fiction, like anything else in life, is worthwhile when we engage with it, when we get interested, when we get curious. That goes for culture-shifting books like Toni Morrison's Beloved and Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, and also for fast-reading genre fiction like... Tomi Adaimi's Children of Blood and Bone or Stephen King's The Shining, there are things to learn when we step into another person's experience, whether they existed in real life or only in the workings of our imaginations. So today, let's step into 15-year-old Lauren Oya Olamina's experience of a world in the midst of apocalyptic crisis. Some things you should know about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower before we begin. First, Octavia Butler published her award-winning science fiction as a black woman when both publishing and especially science fiction and fantasy were dominated by white male writers. Her work is prescient and beautifully crafted, and she brings incredible nuance and depth to her characters and their stories. Now, Parable of the Sower was first published in 1993, And it's set in California in the 2020s, so right around the bend here, when global climate change and deep economic crises have thrust the entire world into dangerous semi-chaos. Now, this book is extraordinary and powerful, and it should be hands down on everyone's must-read list. And also, it is not a book for the faint of heart. While today's passage is mild, It is a violent and often terrifying world that our protagonist, the 15-year-old black daughter of a Baptist preacher, 
finds herself in. And Octavia Butler pulls no punches when she reads writes these realities. So, okay, let's move on to today's excerpt. I need to write about what I believe. I need to begin to put together the scattered verses that I've been writing about God since I was 12. Most of them aren't much good. They say what I need to say, but they don't say it very well. A few are the way they should be. They press on me too, like the two deaths. I try to hide in all the work there is to do here for the household, for my father's church, and for the school Corey keeps to teach the neighborhood kids. The truth is, I don't care much about any of those things. But they keep me busy and make me tired, and most of the time I sleep without dreaming. And Dad beams when people tell him how smart and industrious I am. I love him. He's the best person I know, and I care what he thinks. I wish I didn't, but I do. For whatever it's worth, here's what I believe. It took me a lot of time to understand it, then a lot more time with a dictionary and a thesaurus to say it just right, just the way it has to be. In the past year, it's gone through 25 or 30 lumpy, incoherent rewrites. This is the right one, the true one. This is the one I keep coming back to. God is power, infinite, irresistible, inexorable, indifferent. And yet, God is pliable, trickster, teacher, chaos, clay. God exists to be shaped. God is change. This is the literal truth. God can't be resisted or stopped, but can be shaped and focused. This means God is not to be prayed to. Prayers only hope the person doing the praying, and then only if they strengthen and focus that person's resolve. If they're used that way, they can help us in our only real relationship with God. They help us to shape God and to accept and work with the shapes that God imposes on us. God is power, and in the end, God prevails. But we can rig the game in our own favor if we understand that God exists to be shaped and will be shaped with or without our forethought, with or without our intent. That's what I know, some of it anyway. I'm not like Mrs. Sims. I'm not some kind of potential Job, long-suffering, stiff-necked, then, at last, either humble before an all-knowing almighty or destroyed. My God doesn't love me or hate me or watch over me or know me at all, and I feel no love or loyalty to my God. My God just is. Maybe I'll be more like Alicia Leal, the astronaut. Like her, I believe in something that I think my dying, denying, backwards-looking people need. I don't have all of it yet. I don't even know how to pass on what I do have. I've got to learn to do that. It scares me how many things I've got to learn. How will I learn them? Is any of this real? Dangerous question. Sometimes I don't know the answer. I doubt myself. I doubt what I think I know. I try to forget about it. After all, if it's real, why doesn't anyone else know about it? Everyone knows that change is inevitable. From the second law of thermodynamics to Darwinian evolution, from Buddhism's insistence that nothing is permanent and all suffering results from our delusions of permanence, to the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season. Change is a part of life, of existence, of the common wisdom. But I don't believe we're dealing with all that that means. We haven't even begun to deal with it. We give lip service to acceptance, as though acceptance were enough. Then we go on to create super people, super parents, super kings and queens, super cops, to be our gods and to look after us, to stand between us and God. Yet God has been here all along, shaping us and being shaped by us in no particular way, 
or in too many ways at once, like an amoeba or like a cancer, chaos. Even so, why can't I do what others have done, ignore the obvious, live a normal life? It's hard enough just to do that in this world. But this thing, this idea, philosophy, new religion, won't let me alone, won't let me forget it, won't let me go. Maybe, maybe it's like my sharing. One more weirdness, one more crazy, deep-rooted delusion that I'm stuck with. I am stuck with it. And in time, I'll have to do something about it. In spite of what my father will say or do to me, in spite of the poisonous, rottenness outside the wall where I might be exiled, I'll have to do something about it. That reality scares me to death. Phew, that's a lot I know. But let's begin with the first section where she's talking about trying to find the right way to say what she believes. This is what we're all moving through our lives doing, isn't it? Trying to figure out just what we believe, whether it's about God and religion or simply what it means to be a good person or achieve success or be a good parent. She says, it took me a lot of time to understand it, then a lot more time with a dictionary and thesaurus to say it just right. In the past year, it's gone through 25 or 30 lumpy, incoherent rewrites. I love this. Not simply as a writer who often feels that struggle to craft the perfect, precise iteration of exactly what I'm trying to say, but as a human who is trying always to better grasp and understand what I believe about myself and the world, about what's important, about whether I'm doing this whole life thing right. And every time I think I've settled on some truth, I look up and realize that it needs yet another revision, that it's still lumpy and incoherent. We're constantly revising what we know to be true, aren't we? Pulling out some metaphorical thesaurus or another as we try to inch closer to what it feels most true for us, what definitions of our success or our spiritual beliefs or whatever we're examining in our lives, we can accept that we can put our faith in. We're using our curiosity to seek even greater and deeper understanding of both who we are and what we believe, but also who we want to be and what that means. Now, the part where she says she cares what her dad thinks, she wishes he didn't, but she does. Yikes, who hasn't been there, right? So often when we embrace this work of identifying what we believe, what matters to us, what our highest priorities and values are, we can find ourselves faced with the fact that what we find may not be welcomed by someone we care deeply about. How often in our lives are we confronted with a choice between disappointing someone we care about or betraying what we know to be true for ourselves? We wish we didn't care what they think, but we do. Now we're going to come back to this, but I want to move into this sticky section in the middle where she's talking about her God. And ultimately, she concludes that God is change, that for all intents and purposes, the two words are interchangeable. And when we look at that section with that in mind, it gets really interesting, doesn't it? The sentence, God can't be resisted or stopped, but can be shaped and focused. What if we switch out the word? What if we make the sentence, change can't be resisted or stopped? but can be shaped and focused. Whoa, that feels huge to me. 
I don't know about you, but I spend a whole lot of my time and energy and lots of angst trying to control or prevent change. And what she's suggesting here is that we are simultaneously powerless in the face of change and also that we have agency within it, that we may have some power to shape our experience of it and possibly focus in a way that we choose. So when I was thinking about this, something quite personal came to mind immediately. And I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version here. When I was 22, I was diagnosed with reproductive cancer. And when I was 25, I had a relapse that got pretty serious. And it was during that relapse as medications and treatments were not getting the results that I needed, and I was really struggling mentally and emotionally, that an oncologist that I was working with sat me down and gave me some seriously tough love. And he basically told me that I needed to get my head in the game or I was going to die. And he said getting focused mentally did not create any guarantees that he could not promise that I would be okay. But what he could guarantee was that if I did not get engaged with this process, if I did not begin taking some real agency over my mental and emotional state, that there was no way in hell I was getting out of this alive. Now, let me be clear. I was not late stage, and this was not a miracle recovery. But I will. what I will say was that for me and my situation at the time, there was almost an immediate change in the efficacy of all of my combined treatments very quickly after I decided to become an active participant in my own recovery. Now, I could not resist or stop this unwelcome change in my life. Cancer was there and no amount of denial was going to make it disappear. But when I stepped into the agency that was available to me within that unwelcome change, I was indeed able to shape it to great extent. And perhaps even more importantly, how I've chosen to focus and think about that unwelcome change in the years since it first came into my life has been the defining factor in the role that it's played. Change can't be resisted or stopped, but it can be shaped and focused. I mean, she talks about how change as part of life is accepted as common wisdom, but she says we haven't even begun to deal with all that that means, that we look for what she calls super people to stand between us and change. Now, where can this show up in our lives? What change might be present for you right now, welcome or unwelcome, that can't be resisted, it can't be stopped, but maybe within it, there is space for agency, for you to make some choices for yourself. This is where we're most often called to exercise our curiosity, especially when those changes are not what we want, they are not welcome. And making sure that we pause long enough to ask questions, to poke around the limitations and the barriers that we perceive around it. What resources might be available to help us navigate this? Where can we go for support? What boundaries can we set up that might keep us you know, emotionally safer? Or maybe what armor have we wrapped around ourselves that may be getting in the way of us getting the, the help that we need? Are we looking for some super person to fix this for us or protect us from it? And going back to that earlier discussion of our ever-evolving understanding and the constant revisions of what we believe, I love where she says, I don't have all of it yet. It scares me how many things I've got to learn. How will I learn them? And then she goes on to say, I doubt myself. I doubt what I think I know. I try to forget about it. 
And she closes the passage by saying, but this thing won't let me alone, won't let me forget it, won't let me go. And in time, I'll have to do something about it. In spite of what my father will say or do to me, I'll have to do something about it. And that reality scares me to death. I mean, how many times over our lives are we faced with some variation of this? An idea or a dream or a truth that will not let itself be shoved aside anymore, no matter how much it scares us, no matter how unprepared we feel to take the necessary action, whether that's starting a business or writing a book or leaving a marriage or having a child. Where will we learn all that we need to know? And what if we're wrong? What if what we think we know turns out to be the wrong thing or acting on it comes at a cost that's too great? What if people we love reject us or turn away because of it? Those realities, much like Lauren, scare us to death. But at the end of the day, they won't let us be, right? They require that eventually we do something about them. In spite of what our families or friends will say or do, in spite of our fear, some piece of our spirit demands that we step forward, that we make that art, that we tell them how we feel, that we quit the job or take the job or create the job. Whatever it is, we know that even though there is so much to learn and we doubt ourselves and we doubt what we think we know, change is inevitable. And we will exercise what agency within it we can to shape and focus it. And eventually, we're going to have to do something about it. So again, this was from Octavia Butler's book, Parable of the Sower. It's the first in a series. And as always, I will link to the book in my show notes. I'll link to Jonathan Gottman's TEDx talk as well in case you want to check that out. So those will be on my website at cindyjivinoli.com backslash podcast. And just a reminder, I am always looking for your recommendations. If there is something that you've read that you found particularly moving or connective, I really hope you'll tell me about it. So Gina P. sent this in. She's another member of my community, and I just love it. So she says, Little Women was my favorite book growing up, and as I've gotten older and spent years looking for the right path for myself, this quote from Joe has stuck with me. The quote, I want to do something splendid, something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after I'm dead. I don't know what, but I'm on the watch for it, and I mean to astonish you all someday. Gina says, I spent most of my 20s and 30s on the watch for my calling, and it's only now in my late 40s that I'm beginning to understand the kind of legacy I want to leave behind me. And I'm delighted to say that it hasn't only astonished my friends and family, but myself as well. That's incredible, Gina. Thank you so much for sharing this. So guys, send me your story. I would love to share it here. Um, Next week, we're going to be spending a little time with the ever-inspiring Mary Oliver. So I will meet you back here then. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word.